Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben. Today my guest is Jesse Zink. Jesse's an Anglican priest and principal of Montreal Diocesan Theological College, director of the Montreal School of Theology and also an adjunct professor at McGill School of Religious Studies. Jesse, it's great to have you on the programme. Great, thanks so much for having me, it's great to be here. And we're excited to talk about your new book, Christianity and Catastrophe in South Sudan, Civil War, Migration and the Rise of Dinka Anglicanism, which has just been published by Baylor University Press in 2018. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we begin talking about the book itself? Yeah, sure. So I'm a uh, Anglican priest, as you said in your uh, introduction, uh, and I'm also a scholar of the church in the non-Western world. I'm particularly interested in the form that Christianity takes uh, once it leaves the North Atlantic world. Uh, so I've lived in South Africa, worked for the church there. I've traveled a lot in sub-Saharan Africa, but also uh, other parts of the world. Uh, some of that travel has ended up in uh, other books. Uh, a book I wrote called Backpacking Through the Anglican Communion was about my travels in the world church. Uh, but I've, uh, for the last number of years, had a particular interest in and calling to the church in South Sudan. Uh, and that was the basis of uh, research that I did for my doctoral dissertation at Cambridge University, uh, which I finished a couple of years ago. Uh, since then, as you said in your introduction, I've become the principal of a theological college in Montreal in Quebec, uh, but continue to have teaching and research interests in the broad area of Christianity in the non-Western world. Fascinating. Tell us, what, what drew you to Sudan in the first place? Oh, a lot of things, I'd say. Uh, the main thing is that uh, when I was studying for a uh, when I was studying to, to be a priest for ordination, I had the opportunity to spend about a month at a seminary of the Episcopal Church of the Sudan in Juba, the capital of South Sudan, although at the time South Sudan was not yet an independent country. And I had an opportunity to spend time with theological students there. And then I had an opportunity the following year to go back and to uh visit these students in their home churches and their home dioceses and learn more about what ministry looked like in what by that point had become the world's newest nation. And I had a really strong sense that there was uh, some really incredible stories to be told here um, and uh, that I wanted to be uh, helpful in telling those stories to a broader audience. Um, and so it was at the same time that I was beginning to think about doctoral work, and I realized, uh, well, gosh, there might be uh, some way to combine both of these things uh, into one. Mm -hmm. um, as I went along, I also realized that uh, for a variety of reasons, the story in South Sudan has really not become part of the literature of Christianity in Africa more generally. There's there's a broad set of literature about African Christianity, uh, which is really uh, important and uh, foundational. But the South Sudan story had never really um, 
become part of that literature. And so what I tried to do in my dissertation was both to tell the story of uh, one aspect of the story of the church in South Sudan and its history, but also connect it more generally to the field of study of African Christianity. Fascinating. Why do you think the South Sudanese story in particular has not focused in the historiography of African Christianity? It's a hard question to answer. Um, in general, I would say that uh, South Sudan um, is a relatively difficult place to do research uh, compared to compared to other parts um, of the continent. Um, it's also, and this is certainly reflected in the subject matter of this book, um, what I'm particularly interested in is the history of African Christianity, particularly since, say, the 1960s, when African countries began to receive independence. Um, and much of the uh, there, there's quite a lot of literature about African Christianity that's focused on the colonial period, which generates its own sort of source material uh, in archives uh, in the UK and other places. But there's less material, particularly about the experience of mission or mainline denominational churches in Africa from the period from independence to the present. Uh, for a variety of reasons, that hasn't really been um, on the historiographic radar screen, I guess. And um, this book is, is one example of trying to investigate more recent history of an independent and ecclesiastically independent church. Mm. One of the things your book does... Uh, which is a marvellous book, but one of the things it does so well is to give us that broad sweep from what you describe as a fairly feeble mission led by expatriate missionaries at the beginning of the century, uh, telling the story of how that became a very powerful indigenous movement for religious change. And the catalyst for this, uh, as, as you present it, is a civil war. It's the catastrophe of the title of the book, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's right. So, uh I'm focused particularly on Anglicanism in southern Sudan during the mission period. There were also Roman Catholic uh, missionaries among the Dinka people. So I'm focused on Anglicanism and particularly the Dinka people who are the largest people group in southern Sudan. There are many other ways to study Christianity in South Sudan, uh, and maybe someday I'll get to them. But for this book, that's the focus. Uh, and as you said, uh, missionaries from the Church Mission Society in England arrived in South Sudan in 1905, 1906. And when they were expelled from the country in the early 1960s, uh, a, a later generation was expelled in the uh, early 1960s, they generally thought of themselves as failures. The church among the Dinka people was relatively small. Um, as you say, it was feeble. Uh, it had little indigenous leadership of its own, but it did have some leadership. Uh, and Particularly in the period of the 1980s and 1990s, uh, when Sudan was in the midst of a, its second civil war, which began in 1983 and ended in 2005, uh, the Dinka people, uh, particularly in the geographic area on the east and west bank of the Nile River, turned overwhelmingly towards Christianity, uh, rapidly and in large numbers. Uh, they were turning away from an indigenous uh, African religion, uh, which was very well developed and uh, had sustained them in a very harsh and unyielding environment for uh, many generations. They turned away from that indigenous religious tradition and turned towards Christianity, particularly the forms of Christianity offered to them by the Episcopal Church uh, of the Sudan, uh, that is, by Anglicanism. Uh, and that movement of religious change uh, is really the, the, the core movement uh, in this book. 
Now, if we were to talk for a second about the introduction, the introduction does, I suppose what introductions are meant to do, it sets up a scholarly context for the, the particular case study of Anglican or, or Dinka Anglicanism uh, that, that, that we're interested in talking about today. And in the introduction, you, you, you describe a debate among anthropologists and some others about the nature of religious change and the extent to which conversion implies a radical break with previous religious practice. Could you just talk us through that debate in very general terms? Uh, sure. Uh, so this is the kind of literature that, that's out there that hasn't generally accounted for uh, examples like the one that I tried to talk about in this book. Um, there is a lot of scholarship in the study of African Christianity, but also in the study of Christianity more generally about religious change. What is it that happens when people decide to change a religion? Um, do we call it conversion? Uh, how do we know when somebody has changed a religion? Uh, one of the things that was the case in South Sudan is that uh, Anglican missionaries insisted on pretty strict parameters for conversion, uh, and they despaired when people didn't really meet them. Uh, but the ideas of Christianity were becoming present among Dinka people. And so there's, there was some sort of incipient religious change, even if not quite at the standards, so, so to speak, that Anglican missionaries set for themselves and for their converts. So there's a couple of ways of uh, thinking about this. Um, but one, uh, and, and I won't uh, uh, maybe go into as great detail here as I do in the classroom, um, but I think one question that is interesting uh, for me to uh ask, uh, or frankly that scholars ask, is about continuity and discontinuity, or continuity and rupture. Is religious change uh, a moment of rupture for a person who makes the change, or is it a moment of continuity? Uh, that is to say, when a person changes their religion, are they changing into something that is radically different from what they practiced and believed beforehand? Or are they changing into something that is largely continuous with what they uh, experienced and practiced and believed uh, beforehand? And that debate about uh, continuity and rupture is, uh, in many ways, I think, uh, a really fascinating question. And the Dinka provide lots of evidence uh, for thinking about it in in a couple of different ways, actually. Mm. Now, when the missionaries from the Church Missionary Society came to the, the Dinka region in 1904-1905, they had very specific views of what conversion meant, didn't they? That's right. So, you know, you couldn't, um, uh, well, first of all, you couldn't be in a polygamous relationship. Um, you needed to be baptized, um, but baptism, in some ways, they protected the sacrament of baptism. They insisted on a long period of preparation. Uh, you had to publicly declare that you wanted to prepare for baptism, and then you had to publicly, after doing that, then you had to publicly declare that you wanted to be um uh, baptized and all along you had to learn how to read because these are evangelical Anglican missionaries who believed how could you possibly be Christian if you can't read the Bible? So if you can't read then can't be Christian uh, One of the effects of that was that of the small number of new converts many of them were men um, because uh the Church Mission Society prioritized offering education to boys. It also meant that they were often young. So the early converts to the church tended to be students. Um, and because at that time in the early 20th century, many Dinka did not see the value of Western education to their agro-pastoralist way of life uh, in the floodplain of the Nile River, because many Dinka didn't see the value, the 
early Christian converts who were going to school were basically those from less wealthy, less powerful, marginal families who didn't really have anything to lose by sending their children to school, so to speak. Mm. So the early church, part of its feebleness was the fact that it was very male-centric and also that it was drew most of its members from people who were not at the center of Dinka society. Mm. And you, you talk in the book in a very illuminating way about the, the ways in which Christianity was presented to middle sons or second sons in particular. Yeah, that's right. So one of the uh, in 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 some ways, the most valuable, so to speak, um, person in a Dinka family is the oldest son, because it's the oldest son who carries on the name of the father. Um, it's the oldest son who uh, would be married first. Um, there's complicated and really, frankly, quite wonderful practices in Dinka society about the um, the movement of cattle among families and how that binds people together in marriage and in other uh, forms of relationship. Uh, and so the older sons would be prized. That is to say, they had the most invested in the current system. Um, many of the early converts to Christianity, in fact, virtually all of them, were not oldest sons. They were um, middle sons or, uh, or <laughs> frankly, towards the end of the birth order. In a polygamous family, if a father has 17 children, you know, sending his 12th born son to uh, school, it might not be such a burden. He would never envision sending his oldest son, however, during this early mission period. Now, did this trend towards the conversion of middle sons impact upon the leadership structures of the church itself? Well, that was one of the things that I was interested in learning more about when I did the research for this. Um, one of the great things about doing this research is that, um, you know, I, I would consider myself a historian. I, I wrote a book about the 1980s and 1990s. It's, it's historical, but of a more recent vintage. And uh, I was able to do archival work. Um, there, there was archival material available in South Sudan and uh, in Europe as well, and the United States for that matter. Um, but I did a lot of interviews as well, because many of these generation of leadership that presided over this massive movement of religious change is still alive. Um, and one of the questions I always asked when I was doing interviews with church leaders um, was about how they came to be Christian but also about what order they were, uh, what birth order they were in their family. Um, and it's uh, remarkable, actually, how many of this early generation of uh, church leaders who really um, came to prominence uh, were ordained in the 1960s, really, um, 1970s, such that they were in leadership roles by the time the movement of religious change began in the 1980s. Uh, many of them were second or subsequent sons. Interesting. Now, Sudan becomes independent in 1956. Mm -hmm. uh, all foreign missionaries are expelled in 1964. That's right. And what does the Anglican Church look like after the expulsion of its elite, if you like, mm -hmm. um, group of leaders? Well, uh, in some ways, uh, the this is a situation where the story is different for Anglicans and Catholics. There were many more Catholic missionaries in the early 1960s in South Sudan than there were Anglican ones. In fact, it was only about a dozen missionaries, Anglican missionaries, who were expelled uh, at that point. And here is where it's important to distinguish between the people groups in southern Sudan, because 
in the early 1960s, there was actually quite a large, uh, quite a large uh, Anglican church in southern Sudan concentrated among the Zandi people, the Moru people, um, the Bari speaking people, uh, many other people who live in the far southern part of southern Sudan along the border with Uganda and what's now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, in fact, uh, in 1974, the Episcopal Church of the Sudan was established as an independent province of the Anglican Communion with its own uh, archbishop and bishops. Uh, but the Dinka Church was relatively small. And in the book, I was able to use some archival data to show how the number of confirmations uh, and ordinations and the number of clergy in Dinka parts of the church was much, much, much lower than it was in these other parts of the church. The Dinka church in this period was primarily concentrated in urban areas. Um, so places like Khartoum, uh, Juba, uh, smaller regional centers like Bor, um, Rumbek. Uh, so the church was uh, growing but it was growing outside of the historic heartland, if you will, of uh, Dinka culture and society, which is the vast rural areas, rural floodplains uh, on both sides of the Nile River in southern Sudan. And this, so th 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 this begs the question, Jesse, yeah. uh, what were Dinka people doing as far north as Khartoum, etc.? That's right. Uh, so the early 1960s was a period of really dramatic change for, for a number of reasons, partly because it was uh, the beginning of Sudan's first civil war, the burden of which fell most heavily on those peoples in the far south of the country, but still affected Dinka people. Um, uh, but there was also major environmental change going on in this period, especially on the east bank of the Nile River, which is a real focus of my book. Um, on the east bank of the Nile River, uh, there was there's massive and widespread flooding. And so many young people in particular uh, sought new economic opportunity by moving to places like Khartoum or Juba. Uh, and so there began to be Dinka communities uh, growing up on the fringes of urban settlements and they needed uh, a form of identity. And they found that form of identity in many ways. Uh, they began to find it through Christianity. So there began to be a growing Dinka church outside of the historic heartlands of uh, Dinka society in places like Khartoum and Juba. So there were some converts to Christianity, but this was largely second sons. It was largely men and it was largely still young people, uh, again, with a sharp division in the landscape between rural cattle camps and villages and urban uh, towns and other centers. But this begins to change, doesn't it? And one of the things you show in chapter three is how uh, Christianity becomes adopted more widely uh, within the rural Dinka population. That's right. And so that's, I mean, one of the, one of the ways I organized my thinking about, about this topic was thinking precisely in these geographic terms. Yeah. So Dinka, uh, and, and these terms of landscape, I guess, um, uh, Dinka society, uh, historically has valued rural cattle camps. Um, that's on the basis of their agro-pastoralist society. Uh, rural cattle camps, um, but part of the change that came to South Sudan with the advent of colonialism and with the slave trading movement earlier in the 19th centuries was the growth of urban centers. Uh, and so Christianity came to be associated with these urban centers while the non-Christian indigenous religion came to be associated with rural areas. What changed as a result of the civil war, the second civil war that began in 1983, 
What changed is that many Dinka people had to flee these urban areas. And they had to flee the urban areas because they were no longer safe. The Sudan Armed Forces, which was the army of the Khartoum government, pursued a strategy in southern Sudan of seeking to hold urban centers, but largely conceding the rural areas. Um, and so you had a movement uh, of uh, Dinka people out of cities like Juba and Khartoum and Bor and Rumbek, fleeing back to the villages um, and cattle camps in which they had been raised. And because at this point the church was small, but it still had associations with urban areas. So the people who are fleeing tend to be educated, and as a result, they tend to be Christian. And so as they flee into the uh, rural areas in 1983, 84, 85, 86, um, they, maybe without even meaning to it, become agents of religious change because they bring with them knowledge of this Christian identity that has been formed in these urban areas. And they go out into uh, a rural area, um, essentially as uh, Christian evangelists, um, even without necessarily meaning it, uh, meaning to be. Um, that's what they began, uh, became. And so this is the migration of the title. Um, much of the literature on African Christianity has focused on urbanization. And it's true, there's been quite a lot of urbanization in African history. And urbanization has impacts on religious change as well. There's, there's many examples of that. Um, but this is an example of not rural to urban migration, but urban to rural migration. And it had dramatic impacts on religious life precisely because of this existing divide, a religious divide that existed in the landscape. So... To go back to this idea of conversion, there's several kinds of conversion going on in the 80s, isn't there? As urban Dinka go back to the rural heartland, if you like, yep. they, they are also converting Anglicanism. That's right. So, you know, one of the thoughts that I played with uh, in in doing this work and a little bit in the book as well is about are we talking about religious change or a change of religions? Um, uh, by which I mean, uh, uh, is it is the important thing to study the fact that many Dinka now call themselves Christian, i.e. religious change, or is it the form of Christianity that they express is different, has changed from the form of Christianity that church mission society missionaries taught them uh, early in the 20th century? Um both of those questions are interesting. And so there's a number of ways in which this uh, this becomes the case. One of them, uh, one dramatic example is music, for instance. Uh, uh, the Dinka conversion movement was in large measure uh, a movement of music, which you would expect because uh, Dinka culture has a generally weak material culture, but it has a very strong oral uh, and musical culture as well. And so when Dinka converted to Christianity, they wrote uh, some incredible songs. Uh, many of these were written by female converts, uh, many female converts coming from uh, marginal positions uh, in society. You know, I talk about this one woman, Mary Alwil Garang Nongdit, who uh, essentially is like the Charles Wesley of the Dinka conversion movement. You know, people, uh, you know, part of my research in South Sudan is was going to a lot of church services. And there's nothing quite like spending a service, you know, in this cathedral with 12 or 1500 people singing these Dinka hymns, just really, um, just, you know, overwhelming experience. And then to interview that afternoon, this woman, Mary Alwil Garang Nongdit, and say, 
So they were just singing your hymn in there. Uh, what do you think about that? Um, it was it was it was quite something. Um, you know, all of this theology is being developed and poured out uh, in these hymns, um, and I talk about that in the book about how um, the the it's not systematic theology. This is this is kind of a popular grassroots theology, but how. Dinka people are using Christianity to answer questions. How is this destruction of the war happening? How is it happening around us? How do we explain what is happening in religious and political and social and economic terms? Um, so music, uh, certainly the Anglicanism that uh, CMS missionaries left was not nearly as musical and not nearly as musical in this way as the Anglicanism that developed. Another example I give is about the the nature and institution of prophecy. Uh, prophecy uh, is a is a really important institution, and I should just say that prophecy is the English word uh, that we use for that. Following generally the anthropologist Evans Pritchard, who wrote some famous books about the Nuer, who reached for Old Testament the Old Testament model of a prophet to describe um, to describe the significance of inspired religious leaders in. Dinka and Nuer societies. The, the word really is more like Ran Yalich in Dinka. But so you have this institution of prophecy of inspired religious leaders. And, and two things really took place that I found fascinating during the Civil War. One is you had uh, indigenous prophets who were also Christian. So I give at some length the example of a man named Kon Ajith. Uh, Kon Ajith uh, was, uh, grew up not as a Christian. Uh, during the Civil War, uh, he had a vision and converted to Christianity. He was baptized. And uh, uh, and after his baptism, he became an itinerant prophet. He traveled around in much the same way as Nihilotic prophets always had. He traveled around uh, preaching and teaching about the divinity by whom he was inspired. In this case, it turned out to be the Christian God. And his message was calling on people to reject their traditional religion and turn to Christianity. Um, ultimately, that provoked uh, a major confrontation, not only with the church, uh, but also with the Sudan Armed Forces and also with the Sudan People's Liberation Army, the, the, the rebel movement. Um, I must say there's a real historiographic challenge in trying to recreate his ministry. Um, he died in uh, 1992, probably. And uh, I must say, in the years since, uh, some people's memories have changed about him. Uh, so it's hard to tell that story, which points um, to some extent to another feature of prophets, which is that prophets are not just important because of what they do during their life, but also because of their afterlife. So, for instance, in the late 19th century, there was a prophet named Gundeng Bong, and uh, Gundeng left behind a whole corpus of sayings and songs, which have continued to be interpreted as applying to contemporary events in the life of the Dinka people. That was true, uh, Dinka and Nuer people, I should say. That was true during the first civil war. It's true during the second civil war as well. And what I show in the book is that one of the appealing things about Christianity was that it was perceived to offer a new set of prophetic material to draw on to make sense of what was happening in the civil war. And that happened in two ways. It happened 
first uh, with a man named Archibald Shaw, who was the first uh, CMS missionary in southern Sudan among the Dinka. Um, it was believed that he had once prophesied that uh, Dinka would be converted uh, by their children. And it was believed during the Civil War, with the prominence that many young people were taking in the movement, that Shaw's prophecy had at last come to pass. Um, and so if it had been prophesied, then surely it was right, and uh, away they went. Uh, the other way that was really important was with a passage from the Bible, Which from the just, Hebrew Bible. Just before we come yeah. to that, Jesse, just yeah. dwell on Archibald Shaw for a moment longer. You bet. Because he's an extraordinary man, just, just, just as Kuanajith is an extraordinary yeah. individual. Shaw is likewise quite extraordinary. Yeah, so uh, Shaw um, uh, was a kind of, um, seemed to be reasonably well-to-do uh, Englishman who went to Cambridge, uh, went to Emmanuel College, which happened to be the college that I was at when I was doing my <laughs> right. PhD at Cambridge, um, uh, which was just a little connection. Um, he went to uh, South Sudan in uh, uh, 1905, just full of vim and vigor to uh, uh, convert people. Um, he went with five other people as the initial team among the Dinka. Within 18 months, the other five were gone, and he was the only one who remained. Uh, and he stayed in South Sudan until 1939 when he retired. Uh, he... Um, it must be said that some of his colleagues, I think, found him a rather ornery fellow and hard to work <laughs> with. Um, but in some measure, that's what made him get along with the Dinka so well. Um, earlier in his career, he would uh, spend time wrestling with them. Um, he kept his own cows. Uh, he got a he was given a, a cattle name, an honorific mature by which he is still remembered. Uh, he did a lot of work of Bible translation and prayer book translation, working with uh, Dinka people. Uh, and he also did a lot of other work among other people groups in South Sudan as well. Um, and he he was um, he died in the mid 1950s, and he retired to Kenya. So he he I mean he devoted his whole life to South Sudan. Uh, and uh, yeah, a kind of kind of remarkable figure. I I as part of my research, I went to Malek, which is the first mission station on the banks of the Nile River in South Sudan. And you can still see the outlines of the house that he built um, and the little bathtub that he built out of rocks in the Nile River um, and also where he did the first baptism. Um, and uh, so he, he is very strongly remembered. In, in many ways, he's like a vernacular saint. Um, but part of the reason he can be admired is that when he was around, the Dinka church was very small. So there's no memory of him, you know, interfering as a Westerner. Sure. Um, trying to oppress local leadership. Um, now that he's dead and gone and safely in the past, he can be admired uh, and appealed to and said, look, he made this prediction uh, and now here it is coming true. Now, the second instance of prophecy you're going to take us to uh, relates to Isaiah 18 and in words that I never thought I would say, the revolutionary potential of the Good News Bible. Yeah, that's right. So this story in many ways, I feel there's more work to be done here, actually, and I wasn't able to do it all in advance of this book. But uh, so the Good News Bible was a translation of the Bible that came out in the 1960s and 70s. Today's English version, I think it's called. Yep. Uh, and it was it was meant to be, I think it's fair to say, a translation into English for non-native speakers of the Bible. Dynamic translation, um, the Bible Society um, uh Anyway, there, there's there's a book about the Good News Bible written, um, and what uh, uh, chapter 18 of the prophet Isaiah, which is probably not a chapter 
many people have spent a lot of time on is a prophecy about the word, uh, the place known in Hebrew as Cush. Um, Cush is translated in the King James, I believe. It's translated into the Septuagint as Ethiopia. And, um, and so it kind of means like that area down there below Egypt. Um, chapter 18 is sandwiched between chapters 17 and 19. One of those chapters is about a prophecy about Assyria. The other one I think is about Egypt. Um, but the Good News Bible gave a heading in its early editions to chapter 18, which was God, pun- God will punish Sudan. I note that in later editions that's been taken out. Um, and it is believed that chapter 18 is a prophecy by God, by the prophet Isaiah channeling God, that um, God will punish Sudan. And that is evidenced in the midst of the civil war and that the lesson of the chapter is to turn to God. Um, it's only six verses, six or seven verses, this chapter. And I must say, I, I consulted, you know, a variety of commentaries um, written by Western authors who sort of say, yeah, we can't figure out what this chapter means um, and move on to the next thing. Um, but for Dinka and for South Sudanese more generally, it is so important. And the good news translation is translated in such a way using words that do not appear in the original Hebrew text. It's translated in such a way as to bring out um, resonances with violence and war in particular. And people could read that and say, uh Look, that is happening now. And so this goes back to the point about prophecy. Uh, prophecy is important not just for the prophet and his or her ministry during uh, their lifetime, but also important for the afterlife that they have because of the corpus of material that's generated by them. And people could say, look, if we become Christian, we get this additional corpus of material access to it, Isaiah 18. Um And that helps us explain what's going on in the Civil War, that God has prophesied this destruction. It is now happening, and therefore we need to turn to God um, through the church. You know, a huge number of ways to tease this out, and I try to do some of it in the book, just to say uh, not that doesn't necessarily mean God is punishing Sudan. It could be, uh, although some people, I think, believe that, um, it could be that... uh, uh, it's the the deities of the indigenous religion that instead of protecting the Dinka have now turned on the Dinka and people need to turn to Christianity for protection. Uh, and all of this is being debated uh, often in songs. It's being uh, you can see how some of the good news translation of Isaiah 18 ends up in the hymns that are being written. You can see some of the theological differences, um, this incredible movement really of uh of religious debate um, in the midst of civil war, trying to come up with spiritual, theological, religious answers to explain what is happening around them. Well, Jesse, it's been a fascinating conversation. I could talk for hours about this book, Christianity and Catastrophe in South Sudan. I read it, I think, in one sitting. It's a compelling read. It's just extraordinary. The story you tell is extraordinary. The way you present it is powerful and often quite moving and full of surprises, like the surprise we've just been talking about, which is the afterlife of the Good News Bible uh, in, in, in the Dinka Church. We've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wind up, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Uh, well, that's a great question. Um, 
hold on. I need, I need to think about this. Um, uh, at the moment I'm trying to run a theological college. No, that's not my real answer. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm interested in, in a couple of things and I can see a couple of areas in which, uh, I'd like to move forward. Um, there's certainly more work to be done in South Sudan, and I think there's a lot more work to be done on this period of African Christian history stretching roughly from the 1960s to the present day. Uh, a huge part of my research was provided by uncovering archives um, in Africa that have largely been untouched and consulting those. I've found other archives like that out there in Rwanda, uh, Nigeria, and other places there's a lot more history. I think that is just as fascinating in many ways as this Sudan story to be told. Whether or not I'm the one to get to it um, is another matter. A couple, uh, two other things I, I tend to spend a lot of time thinking about these days. Uh, first is uh, the question of migration, uh, which is by no means a unique concern, particularly in the world in which we live. Um, and this book, as I've already said, is in many ways about migration as well. Uh, I'm interested in uh, thinking about some of the theological implications of that uh, and thinking about, uh, given that we live in this world of, of constant movement, um, how as Christians and as non-Christians uh, do we uh, relate to one another and learn from one another in uh, situations which bring together many different cultures? And then the final thing, um, which I would hope to get to someday um, and am, am working towards is that uh, in Canada right now, um, there's quite a lot of interesting things going on with Christianity among uh, the First Nations people of Canada or indigenous communities. Uh, that's true in the Anglican Church of Canada, but in other places as well. Uh, and I think that, uh, as I understand it, many of the things that are happening among indigenous communities in Canada um, offer some really important challenges um, and ways of thinking about inherited institutions of church um, and gospel that I think could be explored uh, further in a lot of really fruitful ways. And in fact, some of these questions about uh, continuity and rupture and also about religious change versus change of religions, which I've just been talking about in South Sudan, I think there's reasons to think that some of these things uh, would um be fruitful to think about in a context of First Nations communities in Canada. So there's no shortage of things to uh, think about and learn about and write about out there. Um, there is, however, a, a shortage of time to do it all in. Uh, and so, um, you know, I just keep plugging away and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to return to some of that uh, going forward. Fantastic. Well, listen, Jesse, thanks very much for coming on today. You've written a great book, Christianity and Catastrophe in South Sudan, just published by Baylor University Press earlier this year, 2018. And thanks for coming on the show to talk about the book. Thanks for your time and take care. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Mm-hmm.